Um, you know, I, I've never cried during a Kentucky basketball game except for one time in my life. I can remember it like it was yesterday, though. I was 11 years old. It was 1992, and Kentucky was playing Duke for a chance to make it to the Final Four. Now, it was a big deal because it was the first time we would have been to the Final Four um, in almost eight years. We had been on probation, and now we were back. This was a, a big deal for us. It's known as the greatest game of all time. Um, Kentucky fans everywhere were, were glued to that game. The game went back and forth. Robbie, I told you you'd like this one, didn't I? Uh, he's a big Duke fan. The game went back and forth all the way until overtime. With 2.1 seconds left in the game, Kentucky scores and goes up by one point. All over the state, people were celebrating, thinking, finally, we made the goal. We were going to win the game. Until after the timeout, we didn't guard the inbounds pass. And Grant Hill throws at 78 feet, and a guy by the name of Christian Leitner catches the ball, dribbles once, turns around, and throws up what is now called as the shot. And he scores, and they win the game. Kentucky fans were devastated. In fact, it's been 27 years since that game took place. And if you were to go to Rupp Arena where Kentucky plays, or if you were to go to the SEC basketball tournament, you will see dozens of people still wearing this shirt right here. <laughs> we still haven't gotten over it. And I cried. I cried and I ended up calling my parents and asking me to bring me home. I was at my friend's house by the name of Bo McDougal. And I did not want to be with my friends. I wanted to be home in my bedroom and cry and sulk all alone. Why? Because I thought that if we had won that game, if we would have finally gotten the Final Four, and of course we would have won that game and we would have won the national championship, then finally my little 11-year-old heart would have been content. Finally, everything that I wanted, all my hopes, my dreams would eventually then would have what? They'd have come true. Now that seems silly, but it wasn't for an 11-year-old. And for all of us, whether we put all of our hopes and dreams on some sports team winning a game, whether we put all our hopes and dreams on some career advancement, or maybe we put all of our hopes and dreams in our kids achieving some kind of award or making some kind of all-star team or, or achieving some kind of scholarship, we are all longing for something that will make us happy finally, that will finally give us the longings of our heart. It's been that way ever since the beginning of creation. Think about it, Adam and Eve. They were created with one purpose. What was their purpose? It was to serve and to fellowship with God. God was to be the focus of their attention. He was to be the center of all that they did. They, but instead of looking to Jesus, instead of looking to God to fulfill them, they began to look outside of God in order to find meaning and purpose. And friends, by looking for meaning and purpose in anyone or in anything other than God, we will quickly discover the meaninglessness of a godless life. One of the early church fathers by the name of Augustine, he put it this way. He said, because you, meaning God, made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. The wisest man in the Bible of all time, 
a guy by the name of Solomon. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, he warned us that following our heart or searching for significance outside of God, it will lead to absolute meaninglessness. Listen to what he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new, what? Under the sun. Church family, there is nothing new about men and women looking for things of this earth to finally provide them with meaning, to finally provide them with significance other than what only God can provide for us. That's why this message that Jesus gives us in John chapter 6 is so important, where Jesus tells us that he is the bread of life. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to John chapter 6, and we're going to see that Jesus in this last portion of John chapter 6 is telling us that only he can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. Think about it. It's only through Jesus that we can obtain forgiveness for our sins. It's not by our good works. It's only through Jesus that we can finally be forgiven for all of our sins. It's only through Jesus that we can be restored to a right relationship with God. And it's only through Jesus that we can receive eternal life. So if we as followers of Jesus, if we recognize this, if we believe this, if we know these three things to be true, then why are we so quick to search for significance, to look for meaning, to try to find purpose in anyone other than the name or the person of Jesus? Look at verse 51 if you're in chapter 6. And I want you to see how Jesus explains that salvation is only found through him. The words of Jesus. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now this is the fifth time in John chapter 6 that Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. There's one thing that's different about this verse, and that's that he adds a promise. Not only does he say, I am the bread of life, but then he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live how long? Forever. See, I love that Jesus uses this everyday illustration in order to, to communicate this profound spiritual truth. Everyone eats bread, right? Unless you're on Paleo or South Beach or Atkins or some of those, and I apologize for that. But every we eat bread, it's just common. So what are some things that we can take away from the fact that Jesus uses this illustration of calling himself the bread of life? Three quick things before we continue on. Number one, just as food is useless unless it's eaten, spiritual truth is of no benefit if we don't apply it. See, friends, just knowing the truth without acting upon it, it's not useful to us. We weren't made to sit here on a Sunday morning and to read God's Word and to read God's Word in your individual Bible study on Sunday morning and then do nothing about it. That's not what we were created to do. We're not just to, to know God's Word, know where to act upon it. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he put it this way, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Number two, just as bread is essential to life, we need daily nourishment from Jesus. 
Think about this. If bread here, if it symbolizes food, then it's not enough for us to simply interact with Jesus just one time a week. We wouldn't survive very long if we only um, ate every Sunday, would we? Much less you wouldn't survive very long if you only uh, ate one day a week on Sunday when there was nothing better to do that Sunday or maybe if the weather wasn't too bad, or the weather wasn't too good, or, or there wasn't something else we'd rather do. Do you see where I'm going with this? No, we need food more often than that. Most of us, we eat how many times a day? Three, four, five? All right, let's say three, all right? Now you're hungry. Most of us eat three times a day, and if you're like me, and you eat a little bit later than normal, like if the pastor goes long and you're late getting to lunch, then you get what? Grumpy. And it affects your attitude. It affects how you treat other people. It affects your mind. The same is true in your spiritual life. When you go, the further you go apart from spending time in God's word, from spending time with Jesus, it affects your attitude. It affects what you think. It affects how you treat other people. So let me ask you this. If this morning as we're in worship and we're diving into God's word, if this is your daily nourishment upon God's word, let me ask you, when will your next meal come? Because I'll tell you this, if you're waiting until next Sunday, you're not doing what God has created us to do. We are to nourish upon him every single day. Number three, just as we must digest our own food, growing in our faith is something that we must do for ourselves. Now, when I'm hungry, you can help me. You can invite me over and you can cook me a meal. You can invite me to lunch, to dinner, and you can pay for my food. Even if I'm disabled, you can, you can take the food and you can spoon feed it to me. But you cannot put that food into my stomach. You can't digest it for me, can you? The same is true with Jesus. See, it helps and it's great to have Christian grandparents who lead a godly example for you. It's wonderful to have Christian parents who pray and read the Bible and, and lead you to Jesus. But in the end, we must know Jesus for ourselves. We can't do it for other people and no one else can do it for you. We have to make the choice individually to spend time in God's word, to grow in the grace in the knowledge of Jesus. And don't miss this, this last part of verse 51. Look what Jesus says. He says, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my what? My flesh. You see, it was Jesus actually offering his flesh that um, paid the price of redemption. Think about it. If all Jesus did was to come into, into, the, into this earth when he was born and to say, okay, guys, I'm going to be an example. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to tell you this is what it takes in order for you to have eternal life. Well, we know that what it takes is that we need to, to have God's standard, which is, is perfection. And if we must meet God's level of perfection, and we know there's no way we can because every person who's lived sin and all sinners, um, the wages of sin is death, then that would make Jesus less than a prophet. That would uh, cause a problem for us. Because if all he did was teach us the way, then we would not have salvation. But since, according to Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death, and since, according to Hebrews 9.22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, the good news for those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior 
is that we know that Jesus was the ultimate, that Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin. Remember John the Baptist in the very first part of John, John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, Jesus comes the Lamb of God who takes away the what? The sin of the world. Church family, God accepts Jesus' death for all of those who have accepted, who have placed their trust in him, for all who have repented of their sin. God accepts Jesus' death as the full and final payment for our sin. And we are pardoned for our sins. Why? Because Jesus' payment satisfied God's wrath towards sin. We don't like to talk about God's hatred towards sin, but there is a holy wrath that God has towards sin. But once we trust Jesus, once we, we confess our sins, once we repent and we, we call out to him as our savior, then all of the wrath, it's blocked from us and it's placed upon Jesus himself. And friends, that is the best news that I can share with you this morning. Now, some in the crowd were a little confused. They didn't really understand, what are you talking about, Jesus? Especially that part about we've got to eat your flesh. Look at verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now we know that Jesus wasn't speaking literally, right? He was speaking metaphorically, telling people that unless I physically die upon the cross, unless my body is on the cross, then there is no way for you to obtain salvation. Let's keep reading in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate. Remember last week they were talking about manna from heaven. They were saying, just do what Moses did. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now understand that this concept of of a crucified Messiah, it was really a stumbling block for the Jews. It was a stumbling block for those that were in this crowd. Why? Because in their mind, they had envisioned that when the Messiah was coming, that when he came, that he was going to be this political ruler, that he was going to come in power, he was going to come in might, he was going to put the Romans back in their place, he was going to restore Israel to prominence. And so the fact that Jesus was going to come and he's going to claim to be the Messiah, but he's going to die a death that he didn't deserve, it did not fit their worldview. It didn't fit the narrative in which they had set up for the Messiah. That's why Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, which is what? A stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. So Jesus says that for those who reject him, they have no life. And in order to inherit, in order to receive eternal life, that you must trust him as Savior, and then you are guaranteed this abundant life. And by the way, this abundant life doesn't end in death, as many of the Jews believe that was the end, but it actually continued throughout all of eternity. That's why he makes this promise that he says that he will raise him up on the last day. 
Jesus is speaking right here to the assurance of the resurrection. And church family, that's the hope that we have. That's the hope that we have above all hope, that no matter what this world may bring us, no matter how we may meet our end, no matter what happens to us, we have the promise of the resurrection, that this world is not what we live for. This is not the end, but we will one day be raised with Jesus, we just sang about, and we will be reunited with him and live with him for eternity. For if the resurrection is not true, then what are we doing here? Why are we even in church? Why do we spend our lives reading the Bible if we don't believe in the promise of the resurrection? In 1920, there was a man living in Boston. This man was relatively unknown until people began investing their money with him. He started a business called the Securities Exchange Company, and he made this promise. And the promise was that if you invest your money with me for 45 days, that I can guarantee you that you will make a 50% return on your investment. Then he went even further. He said, if you will keep your money with me for a full 100 days, or excuse me, 90 days, then I will promise 100% return. Within a few months, 40,000 people invested close to $15 million with this man. Some people had liquidated their entire life savings. Some people mortgaged their homes to give it to this man. In August of that year, Charles Ponzi was arrested and charged with multiple counts of fraud and theft. Why? Because he couldn't fulfill the promise that he had made. Since then... What do we often call deals that are too good to be true? We call them what? Ponzi schemes, right? Sometimes it's difficult for us to tell the difference between what's real and what's fake. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you have bought something overseas that you thought, oh, this is so expensive, it's got to be real, right? Maybe it was a watch or sunglasses or a purse or some luxury item, and you get home and you see, why is my wrist green or why is it falling apart? And, and you think, well, how did this happen? Sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between something that's real and something that's fake. In this last section of John chapter 6, we're going to discover some key differences that Jesus is going to say. These are the differences between a real and a fake disciple. This is what separates being a genuine follower of mine and what means a fake disciple. See, many people who followed Jesus, especially early in his ministry, they were fascinated by his miracles. They loved seeing that the special powers that he had, especially the ones that, that benefited them. But if you were here last week, I said many of them, they were thrill seekers. They wanted things from Jesus more than they actually wanted Jesus himself. And we're about to see that some of these men in verse 60, where we're about to start, they were no different. They were attracted to Jesus by the miracles that they had seen. They enjoyed the meal at the beginning of chapter 6. They had just eaten so much that their stomachs were filled. And they hoped that this man was going to deliver them from Rome. And he was finally going to, to put them on the right path. But right here in verse 66, we're about to read that now they reject Jesus' words. Why? Because they're offensive. As long as Jesus, um, as long as Jesus provided free food, 
As long as he provided physical healing, as long as he protected them from their enemies, the crowds flocked to him. But now we're going to get to a turning point and we're going to see that when he demanded that people confess their sins, when he demanded that they call out to him for their only salvation, it only comes through him. When he, acknowledged, when he said, you've got to acknowledge that all of your good efforts, all of your good deeds, they're meaningless to achieve a right relationship with God except by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now they become offended and they leave Jesus. It's still true to It's easy to love and to accept baby Jesus in the manger, right? We can even accept Jesus who would be compassionate or empathetic and he dies on the cross. And, and we can say, oh, well, we, we can love that kind of Jesus. But more and more, we find that people are unwilling to accept the Jesus that is found in the Gospels. Why? Because he doesn't fit our cultural narrative. So we want to recreate Jesus so that we can feel better about worshiping that Jesus instead of the Jesus that we find in the Bible. We don't want to talk about a Savior who rebukes sinners. We no longer want to talk about a, a Savior who talked about a real um, eternal hell. We don't want to talk about a Savior who said, no, all roads don't lead to God. And it's not by living a good life, but the only way that you can have eternal life is by believing in me. So we want to follow. We want the Jesus who will give us free stuff. We want the Jesus who makes us feel good about ourselves, but then we want to take out the parts of Scripture that kind of convict us that make us feel like, oh, well, that, let's just leave that. And surely he wouldn't mean that. This is a different year, right? Let's pick up the story in verse 66. I believe this may be the saddest verse in the entire Bible. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Here we see that the false disciples, they permanently abandoned Jesus. Why? Because now Jesus got to a point where he's calling out their lack of faith. He's calling out what it really takes for salvation. And it was too harsh. It was too offensive. So they permanently abandoned him. I like how one author put it. He says, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. Again, Notice how the false disciples, they looked like real disciples at most of the time. They followed Jesus from place to place. They celebrated when Jesus healed the lame man. They celebrated when the blind person they were full. It seemed like Jesus had come to meet all of their needs, to solve all their problems. So last week they wanted to do what? They forced him to become king. But now in verse 66... After hearing of the demands of following Jesus, of hearing of the cost that they must pay to follow Jesus, of the thousands of people, some of them that were false disciples, they turn away from him. Why? Because their hopes are dashed. Their dreams of a life on easy street with a, with a savior who's more like a Santa Claus is gone forever. This isn't what they signed up for. They looked like real disciples. At times they even acted like real disciples, but they stopped following Jesus and they proved to everyone that they were not genuine followers of Jesus. Why? Because the demands were simply too high. The crowd of false disciples, 
They loved Jesus for the miracles he provided. They came to Jesus for the food that he gave. They desired the Messiah that would give them political freedom. And church, if you listen closely, you'll hear this same message preached in thousands of churches across America. It's a false gospel that says, come to Jesus and you'll get wealthy. Come to Jesus and you'll be successful. Come to Jesus and you'll find everything that your hearts have ever desired. Come to Jesus and you'll find everything except the demands of what it costs to follow Jesus. So we've talked a little bit about what it means to be a false disciple. But what does it mean to be a genuine, real disciple of Jesus? Let me give you just a few things. A genuine disciple comes to Jesus because he or she knows that without him, there is no hope for making it another day. There's a reason that when Jesus taught us how to pray, he said, give us this day our what bread? Our daily bread, that we are to approach him, that we need him daily for nourishment. Number two, a genuine disciple seeks Jesus, not just his gifts. See, Jesus, he is the greatest treasure, not the gifts that we receive from him. Give you three more in just a minute, but let me finish these last few verses. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So after watching literally thousands of these disciples turn away and permanently abandon him, Jesus turns to the 12. He says, what about you? Are you going to leave me as well? Now understand, Jesus didn't ask those 12 disciples because he didn't know if they, what their answer was going to be. No, He asked these 12 disciples in order to give them an opportunity for them to verbally express their trust and their complete dependence on him. And Peter clearly does this. He does this by calling Jesus. Look at the title he uses for Jesus, the Holy One. This is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 6. And it's a reference that could only be used for God. So the third thing that we know about a genuine disciple is that as a genuine disciple, one must begin by recognizing, as Peter did, who Jesus is. And that is that he is God. Peter also acknowledged that Jesus was the only way for salvation. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go for eternal life? Now understand, that's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer was there's no one that we can go to for eternal life other than you. So number four, A genuine disciple rejects anyone else as Savior, including, this may be most important, ourselves. See, we like to believe in the American dream. We like to believe that we need to pick ourselves up from our bootstraps and we need to do it ourselves. Friends, the message of the gospel is not independence. In fact, the message of the gospel is dependence completely, daily, hourly, minute by minute upon Jesus, that he is our savior. And fifth and final, a genuine disciple trusts Jesus alone. 
for a genuine disciple, there's no fallback plan. There's no, well, I'll follow Jesus as long as things are going well. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as things don't get too difficult. I'll follow you, Jesus, as long as you don't expect too much of me. And, and oh, of course, I'll continue to follow you as long as I can make you into my image, not according to who you say you are in the gospel. Because I certainly don't want to be offended by something that you said back then. So let me ask you, there's one question I want you to wrestle with this afternoon. It's not this week, it's not next month, but I want you to do it today. It's the most important question that I can ask you to wrestle with individually. And it's this question. At this moment, are you a true or a false disciple? I don't ask that question lightly. I don't think that there are many in this room that would sacrifice their Sunday morning at 1030 and come to church that, that wouldn't acknowledge that Jesus is God's son. I think that most of us here would say, yes, I believe that he is God's son. I believe that he is the Messiah. But I think we would be fooling ourselves if we didn't ask the question, if we didn't evaluate our lives, if we didn't evaluate our relationship with Jesus and think that we wouldn't find ourselves where thousands of other disciples were when the life that Jesus demanded wasn't what they expected and they ended up leaving him. My hope and my prayer is that as genuine, true disciples, followers of Jesus, that we will be able to say, even in the storms of life, even in the most difficult days of our journey with Jesus, that we'll agree with the hymn writer who said, whatever my lot, thou hast what? taught me to say, even when I don't understand, even when it's difficult, even when everyone else looks at me and says, how can you do that? I will say it is well with my soul. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life that your son lived in front of thousands and thousands of people. We thank you for his example. But we thank you most of all for his sacrifice, for his obedience to follow your command, to lay down his life, to satisfy your wrath against sin so that we might have the opportunity to receive forgiveness and to go from being an enemy of yours to a son or a daughter of yours. Lord, I think we would be fooling ourselves if we didn't evaluate our own lives and say, are we a genuine, real disciple of yours or are we just acting like one? So Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would work on our hearts and lives that you would convict us of areas of our life that don't line up with your word and that we would repent of those things and we would turn to you. 
Lord, I pray with all that I have, Lord, that if there is someone here in this room that has never genuinely confessed their sin, repented of their sin, and come to you as their Lord and Savior, that they will respond to the gospel today. Maybe they feel like because they were baptized as a child, maybe because they joined a church, that that's all that it takes. Lord, don't let anyone leave here today without having the assurance that you have promised us of what it means to be a disciple of yours. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death. And we thank you that he is alive today. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.